folks. Welcome to What in the History. I am Dan Brady. I am Johnny Smith. And we are talking about Sergeant First Class Edward Carter, episode 25, kicking off Black History Month. Fucking fantastic. I'm doing great. How are you, Johnny? I'm doing phenomenal, Dan. I couldn't be much better. Yeah, you look like you're doing swell. I'm living the fucking dream over here, kiddo. Yeah, man. I uh, I had my first uh, stand-up comedy performance tonight in, oh, about two months. Is really How great. was that? Oh, That's man. Good. It was good. I I was a host. Uh, had a great set. And um, unfortunately, I can't speak the same for everybody else. But, you know, uh, James Hamilton did great. Uh, Anthony Morelli, who, you know, it's his own show and he put himself laugh last he did really good uh and i had a really fun customer interaction uh you know my joke about uh the military which that went well by the way uh dead yes, friend sir. jokes always does very good uh and so some guy i was buying you get a free appetizer when you perform there and some guy bought me my free appetizer and i was like no no sir i was like you don't have to he's like oh you served i have to. i'm like no you don't understand so he bought me my free pretzel. Oh, man, you should have got another appetizer then. I can only eat so much. Oh, man, I'd have balled out. Got some boneless wings or some shit like that. No, this pretzel I got that was about this big. You're talking Carb City over there, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, got my Buddha belly. So today's uh, episode, we were talking about heroism. We were talking about the embodiment of the warrior spirit. And unfortunately, we are also talking about staunch racism and the raci racism that these men faced. These men who said, you know what? I'm going to stand up to the German army and I'm going to go overseas and I'm going to fight for a country that doesn't respect me. Uh, that's the basis of today's story. We're talking about a little known uh, man in history, someone who should be remembered uh, up with John Baslone and Audie Murphy in terms of World War II heroes. Uh, <laughs> if you want to learn more about this subject, Netflix has a very good 30-minute documentary on it. Uh, Metal hold, on, Honor. hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you want to learn more about this subject, listen to this fucking podcast. It's got way more information than 30 minutes of Netflix. Fuck that. Listen to this goddamn thing. Johnny, I am trying to give my credit to where I did my research from all right or trying uh, to be professional over here. guys like hold up turn this fucking episode off go watch this show first folks. hey man as long as i listen to a minute of it it counts as a listen and we have low standards here folks <laughs> keep my standards low so i'll never disappointed oh man jesus <laughs> i'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna get all crazy over here but that's wild man so edward carter sergeant first class he didn't get his Medal of Honor in 1944 and 1945 because uh, out of the 294 Medals of Honor that were giving, given out or, you know, handed out, not handed out. That's a terrible fucking word. Damn, <laughs> come on. Willy nilly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, just you want a Medal of Honor. You want to. Um, Everybody gets a Medal of Honor. <laughs> Look under your seats, motherfuckers. Oprah with the stolen valor. Um, no. Uh, Oprah served, Out of the man. 294 
none of them were black troops. No black troop was awarded. Of the 1.2 million black troops that served in World War II, none of them got a Medal of Honor. And that's wicked whack. World War II was the only war in which no men uh, received, no black men received the Medal of Honor. So in 1992, the Pentagon uh, did some investigating. They commissioned a study to determine why the black soldiers um, weren't given the Medal of Honor. Black soldiers had won the medal in every other uh, major American conflict, including the Civil War. Wow. Including, <sighs> including the War of Northern Aggression. Right. Uh, a number of soldiers, uh, including Edward Carter, uh, were originally awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which is number two. Uh, if you remember from the Audie Murphy dive, uh, it's the second highest medal for valor in the arm, which is still good. Uh, but as we're going to talk about after what Edward Carter did, uh, a lot of his officers were like, he deserves the Medal of Honor. But we know for a fact he's going to get turned down. So we're just going to put him in for this. That's whack too. Yeah. So a lot of black veterans speculated that this was no accident uh, pressured by the black press civil rights groups and veterans and their families facing the possibility of Congress in case you are watching on YouTube uh, I wrote the entire episode on my phone because I was stuck in my car for four hours the other day so here we are Dan if they're watching on YouTube show them that real cool sticker that's on the back of your oh, phone yeah uh, Inquisitive Minds podcast. If you didn't know, that is my best friend Johnny's other podcast that he does without me. Hey, I included him in one. He did one. <laughs> yeah, in the saddest fucking podcast episode that's out there. By the way, that is episode 17, Veteran Suicide, Inquisitive Minds. That's I-Q-U-I-Z. Uh, I, I, I N-Q-U-I-Z-A-T-I-V-E. It's spelled a little bit differently, guys. I try to go off of it without reading on the sticker, but thank you. Anytime. It's also the uh, green screen background I'm, I'm using. Uh, this study was undertaken by a group of scholars, including a man named Daniel K. Uh, Gibran. <laughs> Already a good man in my book. Oh, because um, of Daniel? <laughs> then a, a professor at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, after 15 months of investigation, the team produced a 272-page report concluding that the racial climate and practice within the Army during World War II accounted for the lack of Black Medal of Honor recipients. Now, some of you might be like, well, maybe they didn't deserve them. Bullshit. Uh, there's at least 10 men that were awarded the uh, Distinguished Service Cross, and seven of those 10 uh, in 1997 received a medal of honor in place of that. You know, when you first mentioned it, I was thinking about making a little joke about it, but I thought it was hack. So if you're listening out there and you, that crossed your mind, maybe none deserved it. Go shut the fuck up. Um, yeah. So the report uh, recommended that 10 black soldiers, nine of them who had received the distinguished service cross be considered for the medal of honor. After reading the report, Secretary of the Army Togo West and the Army's uh, senior uniform leadership agreed with its recommendation and initiated corrective action. It was decided that six of the Distinguished Service Cross 
yeah, people who got the, I just recipients, can't say that. Recipients. recipients, thank you. And the winner of a silver star, the third highest award for Valor, would be awarded the Medal of Honor. There is only one snag. Congress would need to waive the 1952 statutory time limit on granting the award to World War II veterans. Uh, Congress was expected to vote on the issue in September, and the ceremony would be held sometime after that. So on May 6th, to gain more steam, uh, U.S. News and World Report published a long article on the government's plan uh, to award the Medal of Honor to seven Black veterans of World War II. This article was written, for those of you who love war history, uh, will know this name, Joe Galloway. He also wrote the, uh, uh, co-authored the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, and was uh, featured in the movie, We Were Soldiers. Hey, guys, I'm just tuning in here. I'm still alive. I'm paying attention. I'm just letting you know I'm, I'm part of the program today. It, uh, <laughs> appreciate you being here, Johnny. Uh, brief descriptions of each of the seven candidates, only one of whom, first uh, Lieutenant Vernon J. Baker, was still alive. Uh, the others were Sergeant Edward Carter Jr., First Lieutenant John R. Fox, Private First Class Willie F. James, uh, Staff Sergeant Reuben Rivers, First Lieutenant Charles L. Thomas, and Private George Watson. The article included accounts of what each man had done to deserve the medal. So <clears throat> Congress uh, eventually votes on to set aside the statute limitations uh, <clears throat> and the medal, uh, the medal of honor to seven soldiers. The ceremony was set for January thirteenth, nineteen ninety-seven. But here's the here's the thing, and uh, <clears throat> I know she's not listening to this, but I, I want to give a shout out and uh, you know a salute of respect to Aline Carter, who is actually Edward Carter's uh, daughter-in-law. She never met Carter, but once. <laughs> her family was approached that he was going to receive this medal of honor. She took it upon herself. She traveled the country. She did a lot of research on uh, Carter's unknown military history. We wouldn't know as much as we would know about Eddie Carter if it wasn't for her. So props to her. Eddie Carter, huh? That's pretty goddamn formal. Uh, yeah. Good stuff to her. I want to say too, that's uh, I know someone else that isn't listening right now because it's not being recorded live. But those two might be the only two Carters worth talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent. Actually, uh, I know we're recording, but, but uh, I had a, a friend, a guy I served with, I basically said, uh, I don't ever want to hear you about supporting my shit ever again. Uh, cause he said, anybody who has ever laid with a man doesn't deserve to be alive. And I'm like, oh, well, I guess I should kill myself right now. Shouldn't Woo! I Adam Carpenter? God damn. That's pretty vicious. Adam Carpenter. Yeah. You know, I was gonna, I, I was, my goal in 2021 was to not throw shade, you know, not drop a bunch of names and shit, but I'm going to do that in reference to comedy. Like if I don't like someone or I have an issue with someone, I'm not even going to bring them up. No, you know, man. It's, but this guy. What's his name again? Carpenter. Adam. Adam Carpenter. Uh, you go fuck yourself, you homophobic piece of shit. Yeah, and it's always a shame. But anyway, uh, enough about me. We're going to talk about uh, somebody else who faced a lot of fucking prejudice. Though, 
I will tell you, most of his life he didn't spend in the United States. By the way, um, real quick, just on a personal level, yeah. because this is episode twenty-five, it's kind of a, a small milestone for us. Yes, congrats to congrats to us. Thank you guys for listening. Um, I wanted to mention this to Dan for a while, but it's hard to bring something like this up without any proof. And then I remembered we have what is this five six months episodes recorded. Yeah. Okay, so when we started this program together, I didn't know, and it doesn't matter, I didn't know Dan's sexual orientation was non-heterosexual. And he eventually came out to me, and which was beautiful. Thank you again for that. But over time, you've gotten increasingly more catty. I find it <laughs> hilarious, but it's very true. And if you guys listen from the, the first episodes up to now, I think you can agree with me. Not only on this podcast, though, in his personal life, Dan has gotten catty. <laughs> what does that even mean? Do I hiss a lot? No, you are just like, uh, how do I put this? You're just like, uh, I, I can't describe catty without being uh, offensive. Aggressive? I've become more outspoken? Um, like nitpicky aggressive. Okay. <laughs> Is that yeah. bad? Yeah, it's it's just a personality trait. It's not bad or good. Oh, well, you know, I'll go fuck myself then, Johnny. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I don't think you deserve to die if that means anything to you. <laughs> I'd rather keep you around. I hope our listeners would like to keep you around too. <laughs> ain't going anywhere jesus christ johnny we need to get out of this hole <laughs> what are we hey, doing hey hey we're not in a hole here this is content that i we are creating it's entertaining and you know what else dan it's not just fucking history it's two best friends bullshitting about history that's the <laughs> tagline of the fucking show let's take this dive back into this medal of honor for sergeant carter staff sergeant carter so um so basically, uh, Carter was buried in L.A. He is buried at a National Heroes Cemetery, and uh, his daughter-in-law had actually visited his gravestone. All uh, respect, all respect to Mr. Carter, Dan. Uh, just so the people know, we've had some scheduling issues this week. This is like our fifth or sixth reschedule, and uh, I have already worked over twelve hours today. It's almost two in the morning. Dan's not going to get me on here and get me tame. If I got to be up and not working, I'm going to be a wild man. So let's hear about this Miss Lady Carter and what she talked about. So uh, she had went to her uh, father-in-law's grave in L.A., uh, a national hero cemetery, and discovered his, you know, his headstone had been cleaned. Uh, the area around his uh, marker uh, was you know, unmowed. It was just in a terrible state. So she's like, well, if he's getting the Medal of Honor, then he should be able to be moved to Arlington National Cemetery. Now, Dan, as you tell this story, is this one where you can't see the screen or are you watching the screen? A little bit of both. Okay. Well, I've just gone full dude. Yeah. I just saw you. So. <laughs> yeah. No, she makes a good point though. He should be honored by being able to be buried there. So this, of course, wasn't isn't as easy as it's said and done because in order to be very obviously you have to dig up with the body but here's something i didn't know they can't they can't reap johnny please 
You're a serial killer. Dan's like, yeah, of course you have to dig up the body. That's not the hard part. You're fucking psycho. <laughs> well, I didn't know this, but the coffin has to be discarded. So basically you have to take the remains out of the coffin, move it to a new fucking coffin, and then rebury that. It's not just, oh, we got a coffin. Let's put it on a plane and then put it back in the hole in the ground. That's just big casket trying to get your money. That's all that is. Coffee can. That's all I want. So um, I want to be buried with my wife's ashes tucked under my arm so we can be together forever. You're fucking adorable. I know. I'm a sweetheart. Bitches, you'll never get me. You'll never get me. And you don't deserve them. They don't deserve me, you mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. I don't deserve them. I probably don't. I was a piece of shit for a long time. No, I'm doing fucking phenomenal. You bitches don't deserve me. I'm sorry. I respect all, all women. You ladies will. Jesus never Christ. Get, never this, get it. this is the episode I wish I knew how to edit. This is the episode Dan wishes he could control me. I have the ability to mute you whenever I want. I'm like Grimace over here. I can be a mime. I don't need to talk to entertain these people. Uh, so Arlington was fighting her. Like, oh, no, we're not going to bury him here. And then she's like, but he's getting the Medal of Honor. You have to bury him here. And then they're like, oh, yeah. So I'm not going to say, uh, you know, <clears throat> his color had anything to play with that, but Basically, uh, Arlington was going to straight up refuse to move the body. And then it was brought up that he is a Medal of Honor recipient. And then they're like, yeah, you're right. Okay, question, Dan. Are yeah. all Medal of Honor recipients buried at Arlington? Not all of them, but they have a right to be. Um, there's, I can't list all the requirements right now, but there's a couple. Uh, when you get like a Medal of Valor, a Silver Star, uh, you know, Navy Cross, Distinguished Service Cross, and the Medal of Honor, you all automatically get a place. Oh, if by you... the way, uh, by the way, I want to say shout out to you fuckboys again who invaded the goddamn Capitol. Uh, yesterday was my birthday. This weekend, we were planning to be in D.C. to celebrate. Oh, yeah. Because we are fucking history nerds, but it's not a good time to go down there. So thank you, motherfuckers. Okay. Oh, by the way, by the way, a customer. Uh, by the way, by the way, by the way, by the way, by the wayside, motherfucker, a customer yesterday in the cab found out it was my birthday and bought me a bottle of rum. That is fucking sweet. Yeah, man. Um, I don't drink, so I'm just going to keep it over here for the bitches that won't ever come here. <laughs> uh, it's me. I'm bitches. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> That's sadly the truth. Dan will probably drink all my rum because I won't ever touch it. <laughs> so what happened? No, the last time I bought alcohol, my brother drank it all. So the Medal of Honor ceremony was set for Monday, January 13th, and the reinterment would be the following day. The big community send-off in Los Angeles was set for Saturday, uh, January 11th. Uh, people came from all over to see the body, uh, you know, dug up and stuff. Um, There's... Among them were representations of the 761st Tank Battalion, which Carter belonged to, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen, the Buffalo Soldiers Association, uh, Women in the Military Service, the American Legion, the Hispanic American Airborne Association, and so on and so forth. He got okay, a so hero send-off. It was for honor and not morbid curiosity. That's what right. I was wondering. No, okay. there's, 
a lot of people are there to support and respect him. Uh, the ceremony um, <clears throat> was even attended by the state senator, uh, Diane Watson. Um, so it was a really, really big to do. Uh, the ceremony uh, was held <clears throat> in the East Room. Uh, it was packed with cabinet members, senators, members of Congress. There's a video on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, the dignitaries included Secretary of Defense William Perry, uh, Secretary Jesse Brown of the Veterans Administration, General Colin Powell, uh, General John, uh, I forgot to get a pronunciation for that word, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, the Medal of Honor recipients were ex escorted onto stage, and then President Clinton entered the room, and the band started playing Hail to the Chief. Uh, President Clinton spoke about the significance of the occasion. It's actually a decent speech, but um, because he, we here at What in the History, uh, we don't support pedophiles. So I'm not going to read off his speech, and neither is Johnny. Uh, if you want to figure find that out, find it on the web. Strong stance, but I'm going to stand behind it. If, if they're a general listener every week, if they're not here for the strong stances, then I, I don't know what to tell you. We don't have wacky characters. We don't have hijinks and stuff. We have our strong stances and we have our moral obligations as human beings. I tend to think I'm a pretty wacky character. Yeah, if you don't if you don't like our whimsy, you don't deserve our hard stances. And if you're pro pedophile, go fuck yourself. Yeah, so it was a it's a very lovely ceremony. Like I said, uh, <clears throat> it can be found on YouTube. One, and it was on uh, Monday, January thirteenth, nineteen ninety seven, that Sergeant First Class Edward Carter finally received the honor that he deserved. He received his Medal of Honor for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his own life above and beyond the call of duty in action on 23 March, 1945. At approximately 0830 hours, 23 March, 1945, near Speyer, Germany, the tank upon which Staff Sergeant Carter was riding received bazooka and small arms fire from the vicinity of a large warehouse to its left front. Staff Sergeant Carter and his squad took cover behind an intervening roadblock. Staff Sergeant Carter volunteered to lead a three-man patrol to the warehouse where other unit members noticed the original bazooka fire. From here, they were to ascertain the location and strength of the opposing position and advance approximately 150 yards across an open field. Enemy small arms fire covered the field. As the patrol left this covered position, they received intense enemy small arms fire, killing one member of the patrol instantly. This caused Staff Sergeant Carter to order the other two members of the patrol to return to the covered position and cover him with rifle fire while he proceeded alone to carry out the mission. The enemy fire killed one of the two soldiers while they were returning to the covered position and seriously wounded the remaining soldier before he reached covered position. An enemy machine gun burst wounded Staff Sergeant Carter three times in the left arm as he continued the advance. He continued and received another wound in his leg that knocked him from his feet. As Staff Sergeant Carter took, took wound tablets and drank from his canteen, the enemy shot it from his left hand with a bullet growing through his hand. Disregarding these wounds, 
Staff Sergeant Carter continued the advance by crawling until he was within 30 yards of his objective. The enemy fire became so heavy that Staff Sergeant Carter took cover behind a bank and remained there for approximately two hours. Eight enemy riflemen approached Staff Sergeant Carter, apparently to take him prisoner. Staff Sergeant Carter killed six of the enemy soldiers and captured the remaining two. These two enemy soldiers later gave valuable information concerning the number and disposition of enemy troops. Staff Sergeant Carter refused evacuation until he had given full information about what he had observed and learned from the captured enemy soldiers. This information greatly facilitated the advance on Speyer. Staff Sergeant Carter's extraordinary heroism was an inspiration to the officers and men of the 7th Army Infantry Company Number 1 Provisional and exemplify the highest traditions of the military service. Dan, he killed six motherfuckers and captured two with a shot in his he, hand. He killed much more than that, Johnny. Uh, very, very well done. Uh, that was the Medal of Honor citation that for the Medal of Honor that uh, Sergeant First Class Edward Carter received. We're going to go more in depth into the story, and we're about to take a dive into his life because not only was he the sword of God, but he was a very interesting and a good man. So <clears throat> let's, uh, let's talk about Edward Carter's life. Let's rock and roll. Uh, Edward Carter was born in Los Angeles on May 26, 1916. His father, Edward A. Carter Sr., <clears throat> was a uh, evangelist and a missionary with the Holiness Church. Eddie's Eddie's mother was Mary Stewart Carter, a young uh, Anglo Indian woman from Calcutta. Her her family had come to Los Angeles, where she met her husband. Uh, she was also a missionary with the Holiness Church. There's two other children, William and Maram, were born to the couple after Edward. <clears throat> so uh, in 1925, some 230 uh, people gathered at the church mission hall for emotional farewell service. And the uh, Carter family was on their way to India uh, for missionary work. They set sail for India aboard the steamer uh, Korea Maru. Oh, Korea Maru. A very uh, pretty name. It is. Uh, on June 25th, 1925, some six weeks after their departure, following stops at Yokohama, Shanghai, and Hong Kong, which I've been to, uh, the family finally walked down the gangplank in Calcutta, a congested city then under British colo uh, colonial rule. They arrived with only 150 rupee rupees to their name. Hey, hey, you want to humble brag? I can humble brag too. I have more than 150 rupees. Yeah, so do I, Johnny. It's not that fucking hard. <laughs> I can't. Wow. Remember. Wow. You're just shitting on all the underprivileged people with less rupees than us. Wow. Oh, wow. Johnny, man. You just, you just need to pull it together, dude. Privilege. What the fuck up? Look at Dan and his privilege. <laughs> it's not camouflage. Oh, yeah. It's not camouflage. That's white privilege. <laughs> oh, my God. At least that's better than, oh, I can't see you. That's so stupid. I hate that joke. Oh, my God. 
I, uh, I, some, I wore a camouflage hoodie on stage once at an open mic because it was Akron, <laughs> Ohio. Yeah. I think you were there. <laughs> I probably was. And uh, this guy's like, oh, I can't see you. And I was like, yeah, that's what your mom said when I came on her stomach and left. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I fucking hate it so much. Uh, <laughs> so segue. Um, so they arrived with no money. <laughs> Dan just drops crazy shit. And then he's like, back to the business, y'all. Here's more facts coming at you. I learned it from dealing with you. <laughs> Fair enough. It's like if someone gave Trevor Austin cocaine. Wow, I am not that I am not that amped up. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. So anyway, <laughs> um, they arrived with almost no money. And I didn't realize this, and I guess I probably should have, but the church has to send money to their missionaries. I just kind of figured that they either went with a good amount of money or they had to work little jobs and stuff to get paid. But no, it comes from the church. I didn't really think about that ever, honestly. <clears throat> but bad news, uh, the church treasurer at the time said they only had $6.25. That's pretty rough. Um, I was just thinking about the beginning of the episode real quick, Dan, and I feel like I didn't... Uh acknowledge it or mention it enough so yeah happy black history month from us at what in the history and uh following this episode next week uh we are going to be doing three parts on somebody that i actually have no idea about oh nelson mandela dan has no idea about nelson mandela i i know he went to prison i know he was in south africa that's really he was it in, he was in bruce almighty he was in uh Oh, What's is that? this Shawshank Redemption? Is this a Morgan Freeman joke? Yeah, that was a Morgan Freeman joke. No, seriously though, Nelson Mandela is pretty goddamn dope. I'm excited for you to learn about him. But uh, let's not talk about next week's episode. If we're currently in the middle of recording one right now. Yeah, this episode's been so fucking organized. I'm sorry for taking us off track for the first time. My apologies, <laughs> you guys. I take all the blame. I'm sorry the one for. Sorry for interrupting and, and mentioning Black History Month. I apologize. Of course, the white man would be upset about that. Check your fucking privilege, Johnny. <laughs> you you think you can use the First Amendment to say whatever you want? Absolutely. How dare you? Absolutely. Um, so, <laughs> actually, I, I messed up. It wasn't all they had in the Treasury. That is all they raised. They asked their congregation for donations for the Carter family and $6.25 is all they got. What denomination was it? Was it a Methodist church? Um, evangelist. Oh, okay. That was a, that was a shot at the Methodists. (sighs) Damn. I, I don't know shit about Methodists. John, Johnny Smith, part-time theologian. So Calcutta was drenched with monsoon rains, heavy downpours that often cause floodings. Uh, the rains would be followed by a dry season that all too often resulted in drought and famine, as if the contrast of flood and drought were not enough. Uh, India was beset by frequent epidemics. Uh, the most recent one in 1924 had killed over 300,000 people. So After only a month in Calcutta, the Carters were having great success and winning converts. 
Oh, so and, they're getting people to join now. And, are are they working? How are they making money over there? Uh, basically, like they'll form alliances with people in the town, and uh, hopefully, they'll get some of the more wealthier people to um, convert and stuff like that. So they're like, "I'll give you Jesus if you give me food." Basically, yeah, <laughs> and doing odd jobs and stuff like that. But once the Carter family actually moves to Shanghai. Uh, they they actually start converting by the thousands and they get a lot of wealthy people that's that's funny um i mean that's very successful i just think it's funny because i'm picturing him uh the father as a uh a missionary by day and at night he's a janitor that cleans the uh the church of satan <laughs> uh through 1926 their work grew your imagination is something else uh, <laughs> their work grew and their household arrangement became more complex and costly. The children were enrolled in the mission school, and the family had hired a man and woman to help with domestic George chores. Domestic George. <laughs> you better get it together, domestic George. <laughs> and the children. Uh, Edward was very close to his mother, but his relationship with his father was difficult. Years later, uh, Carter Jr. said that as a child in India, he couldn't get along with his father, that sometimes his father would beat him, and twice uh, Edward had ran away from home. Uh, Edward dreamed of escaping to another kind of life. So he didn't like the strict religious stuff? No, he wasn't beaten. a fan. He wasn't um, a fan. Carter, said, Jr. Carter Jr. sounds like one of Little Wayne's sons trying to rap. Um... <laughs> He, uh, around this time, he said he had a vision of a visit by a spirit that told him he would become a great warrior and that he would be wounded many times, but that he would survive so long as he protected his chest. Now, okay, this is just a uh, skeptical John coming in. So he, he had this vision. Did it say, uh, like, what type of thing told him this? Because this almost sounds like the origin to the Black Panther. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> we, don't do we don't do that here. Uh, we just drop a lot of fucking bodies. Um, it doesn't really, everything I've read, a warrior spirit or a spirit, it never says an angel. It never says, you know, Michael or anything like that. Just he was visited and he was shown a vision. You know who else was visited and was shown a vision of being a great warrior? I don't know why I'm asking you like you're going to know this name, but General George Patton. Yeah, I was going to say that. No. <laughs> See, when you don't even give me the opportunity to answer, that's fucked up. That's crazy because I was just thinking. That. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you're so full of shit. Um, so by the middle of the summer of 1927, uh, Carter Sr. had planned to return to the United States. He applied for a second passport. Uh, this passport issued on August 12th included three children, um, but not his wife and, uh, <clears throat> and Edward Carter. And on the application, the elder Carter stated he intended to return to the United States within one month. Again, he uh, secured passage on the Korea Maru. Uh, the same ship that brought him to uh, to India from the United States. Uh, but unexpectedly, on September 9th, he found himself and his three children cast off the boat in Shanghai, China. Oh, man. Uh, the youngest son, William, 
suddenly took ill with a high fever. So the ship's doctor basically uh, suspected his typhoid and kicked them off the boat. Ooh. So they were in Shanghai in 1927, uh, was a thriving commercial and financial they should, they center. They should have just wore a mask. I fucking hate you. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Shanghai in 1927 was a thriving commercial and financial center whose busy port connected China to Europe and North America. I'm well aware. I watched that Jackie Chan movie. So sections of Shanghai, especially the Bund, its famous waterfront thoroughfare and location of many hotels, banks, and other commercial establishments look more like a European capital than a Chinese city. Am Fortunately, I wrong, am I wrong, real quick, Dan, am I wrong that they were Shanghai and Shanghai? I hate that you're right. Oh! <laughs> All right, carry on. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, fortunately for Carter Sr., the large European population meant the presence of a general hospital where William could be treated. Shortly after arriving in Shanghai, uh, Carter met a Chinese Christian who helped him find a home for his family and began and he began preaching to the Chinese people through a translator and any Europeans who would listen. That sounds funnier than it actually is. And I think it's just like the linguistics of it. He based himself in Shanghai, where by 1928, three holiness missions had been established. He wrote home that souls were being saved by the hundreds and thousands. That's like an old, a saying your racist aunt would say. You're more such and such than a Chinese Christian. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You changed the TV channel more than a Chinese Christian. That can't be racist. So th that's that. I don't know who the fuck changes the channel. So um, <laughs> the Carters were getting settled into China, right? Um, the Carter Sr. was starting to gain movement uh, with converting uh, people over to Christianity. And he was starting to, again, meet people of influence. Okay. Uh, but good things were not happening in China. Remember our pals, the Japanese? Yeah, man. There's some the, cool dudes right then. Yeah. Um, so, so it was a difficult and dangerous chime, time, chime, time to be in China. Man, uh, the racism is so thick this episode. Jesus, Jesus Christ. Shut up, Johnny. <laughs> uh, China was burdened by a leg legacy of European... Hey, let's uh, listen to this uh, episode about this black metal water recipient. Well, one of the guys just tells the other guy he's racist the entire episode. Dan Dan says more racist things than a Chinese Christian. What the fuck is that supposed to mean, Johnny? <laughs> he changes the topic more than a Chinese Christian. I tell you what. <laughs> Folks, we're having a good time over here. I hope you're enjoying this lull where he's uh, losing faith in himself. I'm going to ask you to like, share, and subscribe if you're enjoying this. If you're not, then why the fuck are you still listening this deep? This <laughs> you can also on. also send your angry letters to Johnny Smith at whatinthehistory814 uh, at gmail.com. Again, send your hate mail to Johnny Smith at whatinthehistory814 at gmail.com.
they're going to be sending me songs and it's going to be the songs. I hate that. I love you. So I know. Hey, are we done derailing? Can we get back to Sergeant Carter here? I, I hope so. Uh, China was burdened by a legacy of European and American imperialistic intervention uh, dating back to the 19th century after China's humili humiliating defeat in the Opium War, steading, uh, stemming from attempts by the Chinese government to stop the British from importing opium into China, European Europeans gained control of ch key Chinese cities. Hey, slick. Slow including down. Hong Kong and Shanghai. <laughs> Shanghai was divided into a number of concessions, international settlements of resident foreigners. Nope, nope, nope. I have too many friends that are losing the, the, the opioid war right now. <laughs> I just wanted to get that in there. Peter <laughs> Falls is losing the opioid war altogether. <laughs> <laughs> Erie's lost a lot of good men up there. <laughs> a struggle. Take a moment um, for our fallen soldiers. So there was a growing civil war in the 1920s between communist forces led by Mao Zedong and a right-wing nationalist army under Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, uh, combined with continuing violence by gangs and warlords and the ever-present threat of famine all of which caused widespread death and destruction and tore China society apart. You better elder, show Chairman Mao some respect, G. The elder Carter and his children arrived in Shanghai not long after a bloody massacre of communists by the nationalist forces. And the fighting continued in the other areas throughout the countryside. It was a time of enormous suffering for the Chinese people. To the Chinese nationalists and wealthy classes, Carter's successes among ordinary Chinese were so uh, many foreign missionaries had failed, and his status as an American connected with an American Christian church made him a man of interest. Man, you're more interesting than American Christian church, Dan. <sighs> <laughs> oh my God, you're so... He seems so flabbergasted. In May uh, 1928, Carter said, they are still fighting a few hundred miles north of us. There have, within the last few days, been killed 20 to 30,000 soldiers. That's 20 to 30,000 in a few days. And those that are taken prisoners are being put in the front ranks of the battle line and shot down while some of the officers are taken and their heads cut off. Relevant question, Dan. Relevant question. Um, if the situation arose, would you prefer to die in battle or be taken a prisoner of war? I am going to go out with a pile of brass at my feet. I am going to go out fighting. Okay, one more uh, side note. Um, Japanese or Vietnam, who would be worse to be a prisoner of war for? Oh, I would say Japanese. I. What makes you say that? Uh, just for many other uh, ways of torture, like uh, I was just listening to this uh, documentary the other day where they would lie guys down on bamboo shoots uh, and they would put like weight on the guy's back and the bamboo plants would actually grow through their hands. Oh, shit. Their body. Um, there's also the force baton death march, uh, which will be a dive someday. Just the way Japanese 
treated their prisoners like most prisoners didn't make it very long. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Thank thank you for that. And guys, that's how you get Dan back on your side on the podcast. Uh, while his fought, don't you think I know that? Like, I'm just... <laughs> While his father was gaining notoriety, Eddie Edward Carter Jr. was growing into a robust teenager who loved fishing and hunting. Later, he developed a love for sports, including baseball, football, track, and boxing. He also learned to speak Hindu, Mandarin Chinese, and some German, which will come in hand uh, much later. By the way, that's incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. Hindu and Mandarin are completely different languages. You want to know some... English? Whoa. So his entire life <clears throat> up until like 2021, he was overseas. So before he actually came back to the United States, he didn't even know there was racism. That's I mean, that's beautiful, but at the same time a horrible stain for the United States. Yeah. Beautiful Especially... for the world. Especially as we're about to find out, uh, Edward had his first taste of combat at the age of 15. Mm. Uh, From an early age, he displayed a love of adventure and desire for excitement matched by personal courage that left little room for fear. Apparently, in an effort to channel and discipline uh, Edward's rebellious spirit, his father enrolled him in a Chinese military academy. In all, uh, he had spent five years in the military academy plus two years on the front line. Uh, <clears throat> he learned the military arts, he learned tactics, and he became an excellent rifle marksman. What do you mean by military arts? Because I may have a quarrel with that. Well, like <clears throat> the art of war by Sun Tzu, military tactics, stuff like that. Like the art of the battlefield in terms of tacticians. Just because I feel some words are overused, like I've seen. Are you about to say something stupid? No, 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 no. When you say the art, military arts, uh, that leads me to things I've seen advertised, like the secretarial sciences or the janitorial sciences. Like, just call it military strategy. He was a strategist. Okay, he learned military strategy. There we go. Um. So Japanese attack on Shanghai. Military Shanghai. art is, is, is what Trip does. <laughs> that is fair. Shout out um, to Trip. Trip Smoke Pit or Smoke Pit Fairy Tales. Go find him. Go go get him to commission something for you. He's a very uh, fantastic artist. He also just released an EP this weekend. Uh, so go to Trip Smoke Pit or Smoke Pit Fairy Tales and check that out. Or check out his podcast. Uh, honestly, whenever I talk to Trip. I never know what's going on, but I have a great time. So, uh, you know where Trip wasn't? <laughs> where was that? Where uh, you have no proof of this? He wasn't in Shanghai in 1932 when the Japanese attacked. You have absolutely no proof of this, sir. <laughs> I, I think the age has something to do with it. You don't know his life, man. Um, <laughs> we're about facts on this goddamn show, and you cannot prove that. So this is the first time Edward Carter uh, actually saw combat. Um, And he fought in combat for two years. Now, I found variations on this, but the the general number was he spent two years, age 15 to age 17, in combat. And can you guess that his dad didn't like that? 
What? Oh, because his dad was like, peace, love, spread the word. Yes, God. but his dad's the one that sent him to military academy. But when he found out that uh, his son was seeing combat, he's like, hey, you guys know that he is not 18, right? I mean, yeah, I get, yeah, that's disconcerting. I'll give him that. But, you know, like I always say, even God had an angel of death, you know? Right. Like, did you not read any of the Old Testament? He was very wrathful. So, so uh, now we flash forward to uh, Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. This created another opportunity for the young Edward to rebel. By um, the way, by the way, um, if, if you're a listener and you're listening to this and you were aware of Italy invading Ethiopia in 1935, you said? Yep. If you were aware of that at all please reach out i'm curious about something here <laughs> um this that was a sentence i never thought I ever expected to hear oh yeah you remember when uh, italy invaded fuck uh, no i don't <laughs> i want to be inside that strategy uh meeting <laughs> what what can ethiopia author us <laughs> offer us well uh then why are we going there? Yeah, um, it seems like the weirdest thing. But actually, Africa was a high point of contention during the early years of World War II. Huh. So the Horn of Africa? Mostly Northern Africa, like, you know, uh, Egypt, uh, you know, the North part. I can't. I'm we sorry. Know Egypt is up there and some other shit. <sighs> I'm tired. Like Johnny said, it's two o'clock in the morning. Up, okay. up top, up top Africa was in trouble. And I, I just spent the past 24 hours learning every serial killer in North America. So, well, you know what? Mention that Dan, since we're, we're talking about it, give that a sneak mention. If you want, uh, myself and Johnny are considering, uh, strongly considering running a second podcast, uh, called murderous states of mind in which we go state by state in the order that the state was, uh, uh, was, yes, or admitted to statehood in the United States. Uh, so Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Uh, in the past 24 hours, I have went through Google and every means necessary. And I have found uh, individual serial killers for each state. And it totals about 356 people. And he cannot begin to describe how hard his fucking dick is right now. Oh, it's fucking through the roof. <laughs> He, he, you don't hear Abby because he beat her with it. <laughs> no, it's because she's sleeping. All right. <laughs> don't put that fucking juju on me. <laughs> There's already one episode where you're like, yeah, veterans beat their cats. Dan beat his dog to sleep with his big old dick from serial killer porn. Oh, man. Who would have thought that ASPCA is going to be the one to cancel us? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> So Edward Carter went to the American consulate in Shanghai and requested the fight against the Italians. Uh, by then, Eddie's military academy training and brief combat experiences earned him the rank of lieutenant. The consul was taken aback and refused this request, instead offered him a job to be a merchant marine uh, for Eddie on a freighter. So not only did this kid grow up fighting in China, he got to travel the seas. Now, what is what is a merchant marine exactly? Um, it's really just 
somebody on a uh, a freighter essentially uh i did have the actual definition pulled up uh because i knew you were gonna ask but that was like three fucking days ago um <laughs> it's federally owned merchant vessels oh but it's like nothing to do with the service no you can be called upon by the navy to be activated but you're essentially just someone who uh, serves on a federally owned merchant ship. Now, as a Marine Marine, how do you feel about people walking around being called merchant Marines? I mean, it essentially, uh, when the Marine Corps was first created, uh, they were actually uh, basically the guards on naval vessels. We would be assigned to the vessels to protect uh, the sailors so they can shoot and all that stuff. Well, let me ask you this. What if a guy came up to you and introduced himself as a Marine and then you found out later he was just a merchant Marine? See, that's not okay because you're not an actual <laughs> Marine. You're a ver- merchant Marine. But There we, we go. That's the spice I was looking for. Tell these motherfuckers what's up. You ain't shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had to if, pull it out and of if you. If you never served and you used to work, you referred to a Marine as a crayon eater, fuck you. A, a what now? Crayon eater. Oh, and who the, does that? Basically, uh, the other branches call us crayon eaters because essentially there's no war right now. So nobody else needs us to fight it for them. Um, so, so basically, they in 2016, like I got out 2015, never heard about the crayon stuff. Then all of a sudden, all Marines were dumb and just ate crayons and blah, 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 essentially because war ended. So now I'll get people that never even fucking served and they're like, hey, crayon eater. Like, first off, uh, you don't get to say that to me. But anyway, this has been Dan Soapbox. Oh, by the way, I went off on a tangent while I was on stage tonight talking about the free food at Applebee's. And I was fucking screaming, and Applebee's doesn't even give us a free drink. If there's anything a veteran needs, it's to get fucking drunk. And everybody's like plotting, like, you know. (laughs) Everybody's like, yay, alcohol and Marines and shit. Ah, somebody get the schizophrenic off stage. So anyway, um... (laughs) Get Johnny, we podcast. need to get back. We need to get back on uh, track here. Yeah, my uh, bad again, guys. Yeah. My bad. So uh, he spent the next couple months on the high seas, traveling to Japan and the Philippines. Eventually, arriving in Los Angeles, the United States was in the throw of the Great Depression. Uh, that was a couple episodes ago, and times were hard for black men seeking work. Uh, he found little opportunity and nothing to spark his interest. Uh, what the <clears throat> What did get his attention, though, was the news of civil war in Spain. In 1936. By the way, uh, this is also news to me currently. Well, let me explain it to you. Um, So the uh, democratically elected Republican government in Spain was attacked by the right wing forces under the control of General Francisco Franco. Oh, shit. Sounds familiar. A fierce and bloody conflict soon raged between loyalist forces defending the Republican government and insurgent forces trying to overthrow it and restore the monarchy. Franco and his troops were heavily supported by German Nazis and Italian fascists. The Soviet Union supported the Republicans, while the United States adopted a non-interventionist stance 
of the Spanish Civil War, like the Chinese fought against Japanese imperialists, would be uh, recognized by historians as a precursor to World War II. The war in Spain <coughs> was on the front page of newspapers throughout the United States. Uh, Edward Carter was a young man in quest of, of meaning for his life and was drawn to the embattled Republicans. Using his merchant marine connections, he found a ship that took him first to Africa, then to Spain. Soon after his arrival, he joined the Loyalist forces. Hundreds of other Americans uh, volunteered to go to Spain to help the Loyalists, among them some 90 Black Americans who fought in integrated units with white volunteers. Unlike Eddie, who was not recruited and who made his own way to Spain, these volunteers arrived in groups and were organized into what became known as the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Uh, the volunteers were mostly inexperienced, idealistic youths. Given scat training, they were thrown into combat against seasoned troops. And you know as well as I do, history does not play out in favor of uh, the rebels. Yeah, no, no. So uh, Edward Carter was already trained, trained in the military arts, uh, military strategy, stuff like that. Um, and he was experienced in combat. So he became uh, basically the veteran amongst these guys. Um, he was better prepared than most of them and many volunteers died both from combat and the harsh conditions they encountered. Uh, Edward himself was wounded in the incident which he recounted years later. He was part of a small recon patrol, the only black person in the group. The patrol was moving fast when suddenly Coming over a rise of the land, they ran into a German unit. The Nazis opened fire, killing everyone but Edward. Edward was hit in the heel, uh, but he managed to roll hand grenades down the slope towards the Germans and escape. Later in the war, he was not so lucky. He was captured by Franco's troops and held in a prison camp for several months. Never one to passively accept his fate, Edward somehow escaped from the camp and rejoined the Loyalist forces. So by the time this dude's 30, he's fought in two different wars, he's been wounded, he has probably killed a lot of people, and he escaped from a prisoner camp. So he's just out there fighting for the, just for this, the love of the game. This is all before World War II. God almighty. He's so, out here getting, getting reps in. So all in all, uh, he was in Spain for two and a half years when his unit was finally forced to retreat into France. By early 1939, the Loyalists faced a bitter defeat as Franco's troops, backed by his fascist and Nazi allies, overwhelmed the Republican defenders. So he lost? Yeah, they lost pretty terribly. Oh, that sucks, man. Um, so following the defeat of the Loyalists, he returned to Los Angeles in 1940. Uh, by then his dad and his uh, stepmom were in Los Angeles having been forced to flee China because of the Japanese onslaught. Uh, by chance, Edward met his father on the street one day, but the two men had little to say to each other. Eddie steered out of the old man's uh, way and he was on his own now supporting himself with odd jobs, amusing himself with the vibrant nightlife to be found in Central Avenue. So he wanted no parts of his father. Nope. And his father wanted no parts of him? Correct. Oh, man. that, that Hey, it is what it is. 
Uh, Central Avenue was the heart of the rapidly growing Los Angeles Black community. Uh, day and night, the streets were crowded with people. And for young men like Edward, there was no lack of exciting things to do. You know, uh, just rip-roaring good times like the Jazz Club um, were hot spots that throbbed with uh, music and dancers every night. One of these nights, he would meet uh, Mildred Hoover, uh, the widowed daughter of a Black family well-known in the community. They met at a restaurant that was popular with young people. And <clears throat> I, we normally don't focus on the love between two people in this episode, because a lot of times it's not necessary in telling of the history. But Edward Carter's daughter-in-law uh, found a trunk, and it was nothing but letters. It was love letters that Edward would send to his wife, Mildred. And just like, no matter what, he's just like, hey, good morning. I love you. Just thinking of you, let her out. Just, he would constantly talk to her and he was just infatuated with her. And that's just a part of the story that I wanted to tell that, yeah, uh, Edward was a badass and he, he grew a lot of grass, Johnny. But he was also a very loving husband. And from everything I read, he was a very caring father as well. It's good to know. So it wasn't long before uh, they were living in sin and Mildred was pregnant. Oh, my God. Um, Edward III, nicknamed Buddha for his <laughs> rotund appearance and bald head. Uh, so he was a fat baby. Uh, was born March 27th, 1941. Little Buddha. I knew a guy named and Buddha. He was uh, he was addicted to heroin, which made him act like a real piece of shit. <laughs> that sucks. Uh, so actually, Edward III is the one who would eventually receive his father's Medal of Honor. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we'll probably mention this more, but his family had no idea what he did. None of them. He kept uh, it just, quiet, eh? Well, just like every other veteran of this time. Uh, you know, how many stories of Medal of Honor recipients have we gone through? And they're like, I want to, I, I didn't wear the medal for the first 70 years. You know, these guys don't talk about it. And I know I mentioned it before, but you have Eugene Sledge who wrote a book just so he could tell his family the horrible shit he saw. You, you know, know to, to be fair, they don't wear it for the first 70 years or so, but the last five to 10 years they do wear it. They are really fucking uh, serious about free breakfast. I fucking hate you. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. We're like Fox News on this bitch. Fair and balanced. So, <laughs> I don't know if he froze or if he just—I got gotcha. just <laughs> I was—he's like, hey, he's like, let's play a prank on John and give the show dead airspace. No, honestly, I actually was about to move on to the next part, but oh. I just have so much hate for you inside my head this episode <laughs> that I paused and I was like, I can't say that to Johnny. Oh wow. So, 1941, the world is getting ready. Well, most of the world's already in war. America's getting ready for war. And uh, black men weren't allowed to serve. 
World War II question, Dan. Yes. Um, do you think if we would have joined the war earlier, things would have been different at all? Uh, yes, I do. We would have been able to catch the Japanese off guard. Uh, they wouldn't have been on their offensive. And also, um, the Germans were kind of contained. Or if we would have stepped in, I mean, we probably still would have had as long. But stuff like Pearl Harbor probably wouldn't have happened. Man, then then how could Ben Affleck's career have been jump-started? That was such a god-awful movie. I agree. It was a terrible movie. You actually saw it? Out of all the World War II movies you could have saw, you picked that flaming pile of garbage? Yeah, that's the one. <sighs> that's the one. If, uh, if anybody's looking to be a co-host of a history podcast, uh, what in the history pod on Facebook or Instagram? Just DM me. Uh, I'm Dan Brady. You know, just say, hey, what's up? I think I could do a better job. And uh, we'll see what's up. Come and take it, motherfuckers. <laughs> you got to have more teeth than me. That's the only qualification. <laughs> um, so faced with the threat of 100,000 black people marching on Washington in June 1941, President FDR issued Executive Order 8802, ordering an end to racial discrimination in the defense industry. Although the armed forces remained segregated, Roosevelt's order represented an important step forward. The war itself would bring about more changes. In December 1941, Japanese fighter planes attacked the U.S. Navy fleet at Pearl Harbor. A Navy messman named Dory Miller. Uh, he Actually, this is a guy that Cuba Gooding Jr. played in Pearl Harbor. Okay. Uh, Dory Miller became the first black hero of the war when he seized an anti-aircraft gun on the stricken USS West Virginia, single-handedly shot down four of the attacking Japanese planes. You know what else? You know what else? Uh, uh, type of movie I saw like that was uh, with Cuba Gooding Jr. A few good men. Yes, that's a good movie. Too. That was a dope one. Oh, you know what? I have mixed feelings too about that order Roosevelt put in. Like, yeah the army needed to start desegregating, you know, people needed to have the opportunity to join, but at the same time, it wasn't, I don't think it was a, a thing like, Oh yeah, it's great to let them in. It's like, Oh, we need to throw more bodies. Well, they were threatening to march on Washington. And if you remember the uh, depression episode, uh, the end of the thirties, he wasn't in popular opinion. So he had to do something. And you know what, that, that's something right. I just, I can't relate with like they're marching for the right to fight for a country that oppresses them. Right. So that's something else. So early in 1942, as the United States launched a full scale war mobilization, uh, the Pittsburgh Courier was a influential black newspaper, gave symbolic expression to the feelings of black America when it proclaimed its immensely popular double V campaign. Uh, victory over fascism uh, overseas, victory over racism at home. Boom. Edward had decided to enlist in the army well before the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was a veteran of the struggle against the Japanese invaders and of the Spanish Civil War. He was acutely aware of the military threat presented by fascism. No doubt his familiar Familiarity with military life and his lack of a civilian career also contributed to his decision to enlist. He signed up on September 26, 
that I mean, I understand his <coughs> reasoning for signing up. Yeah. And you got, you know, you got to think we're going into war. Not all of us are going to make it back. Statistically, there's no way 100% of us are going to make it back. And you never think it's going to be you until it is. There gets to be a point where you expect it to be you. You, know, you, you had an Uncle Leroy. What happened to him? Motherfucker joined the service. I don't know why. Uh, from the first day he entered boot camp. This is going to be the theme of the rest of the story. From the day how, he entered And how camp, old is he at this point, Dan? Roughly 30. Roughly 30. Okay, yeah, so he's a there. grown goddamn man, and he's probably in tip-top shape. Oh, 100%, man. Um, I don't know if you looked at photos of him, but he is a very handsome black man and strikes a very impressive figure. All right. Um, yeah, very well fit. Uh at boot camp, he impressed his instructors. Um, they they were baffled because they couldn't understand how a new recruit um, <clears throat> at their very little training could achieve near-perfect scores in shooting. I quote, I don't miss a thing I shoot at, Eddie wrote to his wife. Uh, moreover, he was proficient with a host of weapons, including handguns, rifles, anti-tank weapons, and the Thompson submachine gun. His favorite, um, which was his favorite, proud of his accomplishment, Edwards sent uh, his wife an article published in the Post newspaper in October praising his marksmanship. The article predicted the private Carter's career will be, will quote, become one of the areas, if not one of the camp's best shots. So he's going through <clears throat> boot camp and training and all this breezing through it essentially yeah and now look at the just thinking about the counterpart there's guys that are going through fucking hell and just looking at him like this son of a bitch is skipping along yeah when i went to boot camp we actually had a guy who was in the air force got right out of the air force and went into the marine corps so like you know a lot of us are struggling to do pull-ups and this dude's just over there like <clears throat> How many did I do? I think I did 20. Like, hey, you know you did 25, you son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so training at boot camp was intense, and shortly before it ended in early January, a tragedy was narrowly averted. Edward lost his footing on ice on a march and fell off a dam into a reservoir with an 80-pound uh, pack strapped to his back. He sank like a rock into the deep water. He was unable to swim under all the weight. He stayed calm and managed to release the straps and buckles and free himself from the heavy pack. He struggled to the surface, much to the surprise of the officers and the other soldiers. Um, they told him he had been underwater for four minutes. But oh, then man. it seemed like four days. It was so cold that his clothes froze when he climbed out of the water. But with the cockiness that was characteristic of him, Eddie said, I am fit as a fiddle. Freezing his goddamn ass off. Hey, that's impressive, though, because well, it's like you think he's dead. They're like, oh, he's dead. And then he pops up. Well, like, have you ever reached that point of panic where you're underwater and you don't know if you can come back up? He had an 80 pound pack on through the ice. Like, it is dark down there. It is dark. And he's just like, whatever. Click, click, click. What's up, motherfuckers? Yeah, that's wild, man. He's a he's a, he's a he's a intense specimen of a human. After completing uh yeah, after completing basic training, 
Uh, he was shipped out to Fort Benning, Georgia, which, by the way, I forgot to put this at the beginning of the episode, but this week's episode is dedicated to our good friend, uh, Matthew Simmons. On Monday, Matthew arrived at Army Basic Training in Fort Benning, Georgia. I know he is not going to hear this, but I 100% support him, and I will hope the best for him, and I know he can kick ass. Yeah, man. Proud of you. Uh, good luck in all your endeavors, brother. Keep it going. Um so he was assigned to the uh, 3535th Quartermaster Truck Company, which he just, he was supplied, but he drove a truck. Um, in less than a year, he was promoted to Staff Sergeant, which, again, at that time, a year from private to Staff Sergeant. That's incredible, especially oh. not being in combat. How um, long does it usually take? About five, six years, seven See, see, everyone thinks a staff sergeant is a joke until you get old and need a cane. Then who you go see? Who's in control of them? <laughs> you know, I love you to death, but I wish sometimes he went, is the audience going to like this or not? Not, I can say it, therefore I will. The audience is going to love it. Dan's going to hate it. But that's why the, the audience is loving it. They're like, ah, look at this frustration. So... Uh, he comes to Georgia and he uh, he discovers racism. Uh, yeah, and that's such a funny line, like just the way you say it. Well, he was in L.A. Yeah, I'm sure he got treated badly out there, too. But then he went to Texas. And when he left base in Texas, he uh, it's just kind of like um, you just get this idea in his letters uh, to Mildred. Like, oh, yeah, I'm black. One would say it's almost like it's the wild, wild west. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> Why is it the only movies you have seen are terrible? Oh, um, <laughs> <I'm>, I... <laughs> That's a great movie, by the way. <laughs> so he would later say they don't treat you at all like soldiers. It's more like slaves. When this war is over, you'll see plenty of tough and bitter boys coming home. And that was 100% the truth. That's a shame. So uh, he had Mildred and his kids join him in Georgia, and they got married on June 10th, 1942. Oh, finally. Hopefully they can ask for forgiveness and all that years living in sin, get some salvation. By the way, Dan, we talked about him discovering racism and how you just described they're traded more as slaves than they are soldiers and heroes. Now, you got very frustrated off air, which I was frustrated with because that's an emotion and a thought you need to put out there. I uh, I plan on doing it after, you know, we talk about what he did. Trust me, it's coming. And that's why we plan out our episodes, guys. A hundred percent. No, um, a year after marrying Edward, Mildred gave birth to a second son, William. They named William for Eddie's brother who was in the service at a different military base. So Edwards officers were impressed by his knowledge, uh, capability and enthusiasm. And as a result, he was promoted again to staff sergeant, but he was a combat soldier, a warrior against tyranny. And he was itching to get into the fight against fascism. Uh, in the fall of 1944, his hopes were raised when his unit was notified that they would be shipped overseas. He packed up his family and sent them back 
to Los Angeles. His trunk company was shift, shipped first to England, and then on November 13, 1944, they arrived in southern France, expect, expecting to be sent to the front lines. Instead, they were assigned to transporting supplies. So from the moment he landed in Europe, he volunteered uh, for combat duty daily. He wanted, he needed to get to the front lines, uh, but he was never accepted. Finally, he got his chance. The German counteroffensive, uh, offensive, uh, the Battle of the Bulge took a disastrous toll on the American forces. Uh, reinforcements <coughs> were desperately needed and there are very few white GIs to fill those spots. He that just was, seemed like he had a thirst for blood, though, like a, it needed to be quenched. He was fulfilling this prophecy, this vision. Um, now, all, now, now that just makes me wonder into the realm of like, now was it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Was he doing that because he saw that or, or did he see that because of what he would become? You know what I mean? I ultimately think he did the things he did because he wanted respect and war was something that he was born into. He was something, war was something he knew before most of us had sex for the first time. He's really sounding like Bane right now. Yeah. <laughs> the Bane. Um, so thousands of black troops stood at the ready and many of them were eager to, I just woke Abby up with that, and she was giving me the side eye like a motherfucker. Now you're going to have um, to pull your dick out and beat her back to sleep again. I can't do that right now, Johnny. I'm recording a podcast. That's right. No public record of it. Good idea. Go to my OnlyFans later for the video. Um, I'm kidding. I don't do that to my dog. This is a very uh, terrible joke that Johnny is doing. Um, wow, Dan just publicly admitted that he was going to charge you guys to watch him beat his dog to death with his so dick. Thousands, he's not going to record. Thousands, thousands of black troops. Uh, stood you know who didn't beat the their ready? dog with their dick? <laughs> Sergeant Carter. Uh, the army finally opened its ranks to black volunteers. The initial uh, postage uh, soliciting volunteers stated that the black soldiers would be assigned to units without regard to race or color and implied that they would be fighting side by side with white troops. This was hastily retracted and replaced by a new uh, circulars stating that volunteers would be accepted without regard to race or color with no suggestion of interracial fighting units. Uh, in fact, the black volunteers would be assigned to all black infantry units under the command of white officers in accordance with the policy adopted by General Eisenhower and the army. The all black units would operate with the, within the structure of larger white units. Some 4,500 black soldiers volunteered. 2,800 were accepted for training and 2,221 made it into combat duty. Sergeant Carter was among the first to be accepted, but like other black sergeants, he was required to relinquish his stripes and accept a reduction in rank to private. The army didn't want any black sergeant supervising white enlisted men. Uh, oh, Eddie had Christ. worked hard to earn the rank of sergeant, but in order to fight for his fucking country, he gave up his rank. That's insane. That's a bunch of bullshit. So I imagine, imagine how high he could have been ranked by the time he got out. He gets it back. 
within within maybe two months he's back to sergeant oh shit uh, in 19, in January, 1945, it was bitterly cold. Um, <clears throat> Edward was assigned to the ground force reinforcement command in France to be trained with other black volunteers as combat soldiers. At the completion of the training period, Edward was assigned to the 12th armored division, 56 armored infantry battalion, provisional company one. So it just, uh, you have the armored division, which is a whole bunch of troops and that's broken down into his battalion and then from there that's broken down into company he was uh <clears throat> the commanding officer's d company was first lieutenant floyd vanderhoof uh, lieutenant russell blair was the executive officer at the time of his new assignment on march 12 1945 edward had no idea that he was about to take part in one of the largest assaults in the history of the war the Rhineland assault. Whoever gets across the Rhineland first gets to Germany. Yeah, man, that's 101. We all know that, right? Well, it was this. I'm trying to explain it for you. Uh, it was this huge, huge rush uh, to get there first because they wanted American forces to be the first forces. You know, okay. USA, 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 USA. So. <clears throat> This was taking place under uh, General George Patton. The 12th Armored Division had been temporarily assigned from the 7th Army to Patton's 3rd Army. So, you know, right now they're, they're getting ready for a invasion of Germany. So Edward Carter was placed under the very famous General George Patton, and he became part of uh, Patton's mysterious uh, mystery division. Uh, basically, they removed all rank and insignia from their uniforms, so German intelligence didn't know how many people they were facing, what army they were facing, what division. So they called themselves the Mystery Division to keep the Germans on their toes. That's pretty dope, actually. Yeah. It's, so, like, it's like if the Riddler had an army. <laughs> so the third army had been given the, the task of crossing the Rhine river Patton was uh, again anxious to beat British including uh, field marshal, marshal Bernard, Bernard Montgomery he was determined that his troops would be the first to make a successful assault across the river under tight security the 12th armored moved into position near Trier Germany from which it could spearhead the drive to the Rhine by the way, Dan, this has nothing to do with the episode, but check out the screen when I drink my Mountain Dew. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> How cool is that? So, basically, he was a part of this assault to get across the Rhine, and they had to go village to village because uh, the Germans were actually blowing up bridges um, to get across. The uh, the 12th Armored Division was organized in th to three combat commands, uh, tanks, armored infantry, and artillery. Eddie's unit, the 56th Infantry, was part of Combat Command B. Uh, these units met strong resistance at Freiheim, but this did not stop the advance. And the advance from Birkenfeld to Ronson on March 20th, some 2,200 German soldiers were taken prisoner and another 1,000 enemy troops were killed. Late that night, elements of the 56th Infantry reached the Rhine. But again, uh, to cross, the Germans blew up most of these bridges. 
the next day, um, March 22nd. Hey, um, man, it, it worked on Gotham City. On March 22nd, they were sent along the Rhine to attack Speyer and captured the Brid. Brid, Brid, the Brid. See, you throw me off my freaking game. The yeah, bridge I don't even know what you were the Rhine. trying to say. Oh. Bridge. <laughs> you son of a bitch. He captured so, the bread. So we get to uh, May or March 22nd, which uh, if you remember from basically reading your little stuff there at the beginning, today is the day. What he's saying is if you haven't been smoking pot the whole fucking episode, you should know that. So on the bright morning, um, <clears throat> March 22nd, 1945, sorry, 23rd, 1945, Sergeant Carter and his Black Rifle Squad were riding on a tank as members of the 56th Armored uh, Infantry Battalion with the 12th Armored Division and General George S. Patton's 3rd Army they were advancing on Speyer, a town of 50,000 inhabitants on the Rhine. The night before, the 5th Infantry had ferried themselves in small boats across the Rhine, allowing Patton to boast that he had beat the British. Now the objective was to capture the bridge over the river at Speyer. So Speyer was a site of an 11th century cathedral where German emperors had been buried for 300 years. It was also the Champagne capital of the Rhine Valley and a row of warehouses and breweries lined the right side of the road as the armored column advanced towards the town. Suddenly, the column was hit by 80 millimeter artillery fire. Now, the 80 millimeter artillery was originally uh, was thought to be an anti-aircraft weapon but it became the bread and butter of the Nazi forces. It was a terrible piece. Uh, men were afraid of it, and for good fucking reason. A lot, a lot of people died because of the 88 millimeter. Okay. <clears throat> so fire coming down from one of the warehouses, jumping down from the tanks, the riflemen quickly deployed to the sides while the tanks dispersed. The officers quickly discussed what to do. Some 150 yards of open field lay between their position and the warehouse from which the shots were fired. Something had to be done to silence the enemy gunners armed with the Thompson submachine gun, a clutch of hand grenades. 28-year-old 20, Sergeant Carter stepped forward and offered to lead the way with his squad. By the way, Thompson submachine gun, uh, favorite gun that I've ever shot. Oh, yeah, you shot one? Yes, sir. 40... Yeah, I believe it's 45 caliber. It was fucking phenomenal. I'm sure it was. All right. So they become under fire. I found Bigfoot, by the way, Dan. He was in that fucking dip you just put in. Mm. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so while the, uh, while the officers set up the OP or the observation post, Carter and his three men began to advance across the open field, not realizing uh, that the tanks were not following. And they also did not know how many German soldiers were in this uh, vicinity. Mm -hmm. So they're walking in fucking blind. Jerry opened up with everything he had, Carter later recalled. Our small group was cut to pieces. One uh. man was killed almost immediately by intense small arms fire. Carter ordered the the other two back to a protected position from which they could cover him as he advanced alone. 
but one of these men was killed before reaching cover and the other was wounded, exposed, and without protective fire, Carter dashed ahead, dodging enemy bullets. So essentially, he ran at these guys firing like a fucking madman. And this is where the warrior's spear comes down from the heavens above, above and finds Edward Carter and goes, it is your fucking time, son. And he goes apeshit. Mm. Uh, balls to the wall is how I would uh, describe it. but uh, Or hell on earth for those Nazi motherfuckers. Okay, that's a good description. So he ran at him, uh, jumped down, <clears throat> but um, he's again, blah, blah, blah. Before he could hit the dirt, three bullets from a German burp gun pierced his left arm. Three, that's three bullet holes. Knocking him down, laying on the ground, looking at his bloody arm and realizing that his squad had been destroyed by the Germans, Carter became mad. Quote, the hell that was being loosed by all these Germans convinced me that I only had a few minutes to live. And I decided that if I was going to die, I would make sure some Jerry's would be sent to hell with me. Now, Jerry's are slang? For Germans. Huh. Okay. Also, krauts or sauerkrauts. I, I, yeah, I knew krauts. I'm gonna get them goddamn Jerry's. I don't know how I feel about that. My uh, my godson's name is Gerald, and I call him Jerry sometimes. They're fucking Nazis. Wow, I did not know my little biracial godson was a Nazi. <laughs> I'm gonna have to have a talk with him. Z by the way, by the way, <clears throat> his birthday is today, the fifth. So shout out to Gerald, happy birthday, buddy! I love you. I know you're not <laughs> listening, but I still love you. If he's listening, you need to talk to his parents. Um, well, the one just died the other day, Dan. His okay. Parent, his parent is my parent now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know how your family fucking dynamic works. I'm sorry. We're all fucking family. That's all that matters. <laughs> hey, man. Good for you. Uh, scrambling to his feet with his Tommy gun and his string of grenades, Carter charged the machine gun that had wounded him. Tossing the grenade into the German position, uh, he permanently silenced the gun. That's That's at least two to three Nazis right there. Uh, don't know how many he took out charging this position. Uh, we'll say, since we don't know if it's two or three, we'll say two Nazis and a sympathizer. <laughs> Running hard, he lobbed two more grenades, wiping out an entire German mo mortar crew that had been shelling the Americans. So that's another three or four Germans. Whew. Still on his feet, Carter was hit by two more bullets and knocked into the air. Bullets cut into the dirt around him as he hit the ground and crawled behind a low embankment. So how many how many holes are in him at the moment? Three. It, in th his arm. Three in his arm, <clears throat> and then two in his leg? Mm-hmm. And is there other injuries? Uh, another uh, bullet hit him in his shoulder. Jesus. Okay. He's got to be in incredible pain. Your adrenaline man. He probably didn't feel it. He probably felt the tugs at him but he probably didn't feel it. Like, look at professional athletes. Look at pro wrestlers. Uh, just um, one of my favorite matches, uh, Cactus Jack versus Triple H. 
Cactus Jack, or Triple H, wrestled for 30, 30 minutes with a gigantic gash in his leg. Didn't even realize it was there because adrenaline. Well, that's intense. I, I, I would like to imagine him crawling and getting shot and just talking shit on German bullets. <laughs> Carter lays still <laughs> in a shelter position. He knew he needed to take some of his pain pills he carried. Can't he kill raced, me with these Jerry bullets. As he raises canteen to wash down the tablets with some water, another bullet tore through his hand. Uh, this made me really mad, he recalled, but there wasn't <laughs> much I could do. He's it's like, like, it's like Audie Murphy when they're like, hey, uh, Lieutenant, how close are the Germans? He said, hey, give me a second. I'll hand you the, uh, hand the phone to one of them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that really um, upset. That really pissed me off. As I lay there, I saw an entire squad of Germans coming towards me in a skirmish line. I opened fire on them with the Tommy gun, got every one of them. Jeez, oh man, that's incredible. Exhausted by this ordeal, Carter remained still. Time passed. His company officers watching uh, from their observation post couldn't tell whether he was alive or dead. So he laid here on the ground, uh, everything I read, at least two hours. Yeah, okay. And, and he's not moving. He's just resting, so they don't know if he's alive, huh? Right. So Sergeant Carter began to think he should try to move to another position. Before he could do so, he spotted another group of German soldiers advancing on him. He wasn't sure how many there were, but his officers who were watching from the American line saw eight Germans emerge from the warehouse and move towards his position. Suddenly, Carter popped up open fired with his submachine gun using three clips of ammunition he brought down all but two of the germans who threw up their hands and surrendered that's incredible fuck them pussies by the way <laughs> uh could you imagine the humiliation of a nazi soldier surrendering to a black man but not only that a black man with six holes in his body now sergeant carter had a problem what should he do with his prisoners one was an officer, the other was an enlisted man. Carter you know, could speak you, German. You, you know, that's a problem I've had way too many times. Like, what do I do with these extra prisoners? <laughs> uh, and the other uh, was an enlisted man. Carter, who could speak some German, realized that the prisoners might be able to provide some useful information on German positions. So he's wounded. And he's got these two prisoners and he has the presence of mind to be like, you know what? I should Spre question these guys. Sprechen's in German? Uh, so keeping his prisoners as close to him as possible, uh, Carter used them as shields as he struggled to make his way back to American lines. So basically he had the two Germans in front of him and he walked backwards the 150 <laughs> yards back to the American lines while interrogating these guys in German. <laughs> Where's the Fuhrer? <laughs> you will tell me now. So uh, artillery actually opened up on his position and he took cover with his prisoners behind a building. Um, but a eight, uh, 88 millimeter shell exploded nearby sending shrapnel into his legs. Fortunately, the dust thrown by the shell burst offered a temporary screen obscuring his movements as he hobbled towards the American lines, partly leaning on his prisoners. Oh, that's good. It's fucked me up even more, but I guess they can't see me for a little bit, so it's okay. Uh, so the infantry, three German infantry men 
made a last-ditch effort to stop him, but he took him out with his uh, machine gun. At last, uh, Sergeant Carter reached the protection of the American lines and handed his prisoners over to the astonished officers. <laughs> the officers no were concerned about his wounds and wanted to rush him to a field hospital, but Carter insisted on first giving him the information he had gathered about the German gun positions. Under interrogation, the prisoners also gave valuable information about German positions that greatly helped the advance. The retreating Germans managed to destroy the bridge, but did not stop the American assault. Engineers built a treadway bridge that allowed the U.S. forces to cross the Rhine. Virtually, virtually single-handedly, Sergeant Carter's heroic actions had defeated a determined German effort to halt the 12th Armored, armored Advance in the Rhineland Campaign. So he gets evacuated to this hospital, and one of his other main concerns was that the men he went into the field with were recovered, and his lieutenant, his commanding officer, said, I will take care of them, I promise. I know you don't have the answer to this question, mm. but I'm very curious to know what happened to those two uh, prisoners. They were probably processed into uh, questioned more by uh, U.S. Army intelligence than they were probably sent to a U.S. Uh, prison camp. Oh, they weren't executed? No. Man, I'm glad I'm not in control of any branch of <clears throat> services because apparently I would do things way differently. <laughs> right? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, like, was... John, where's all those prisoners? I was like, prisoners? You mean pre-bodies? <laughs> it happened. It happened a lot. I am not going to say anything against it because I didn't serve in fucking World War II and I don't know how it felt. So, yeah, man, I don't know. I don't know. Right. I would just, I, I, I'm down with uh, lining the uh, street up to my White House with either people crucified or their heads on stakes, whatever gets the job done. So, uh, when Eddie was wounded, the War Department sent a telegram to his wife. Uh, advising her that her husband was slightly wounded. So slightly. when he, slightly. So slightly. when he got to Germany, he started, you know, writing off several letters. Now, Dan, uh, it, when the, see the three bullets in his arm and the one in his shoulder, it seems like even if it was one arm or the other, instead of both being injured, it would still be incredibly difficult to handle that machine gun. Adrenaline, man. It's the same reason why John Bassalone was able to fight for six hours in his bare feet. Adrenaline. He was part Hobbit. You just didn't do the research. <laughs> also, how he was able to handle a machine gun with uh, third-degree burns. I, I cannot tell you, you know, like the effects of combat definitely influence this situation. Because if he felt every... I'm sure he was drained and I'm sure he was exhausted and I'm sure he was hurting in some aspects, but a lot of the adrenaline took a lot of that off. Plus, he also had a concern for his country. Uh, you know, the information he gathered from the Germans helped the assault across the Rhine. It probably wouldn't have happened that day if it wasn't for him. See, that, he's such a better man than I am because as soon as I take one bullet, 
my concern for my country gets really low and my concern for myself gets through the roof. <laughs> so uh, another incredible aspect of this story um, and something that happened a lot during World War II, because uh, if you didn't know, men weren't sent home after a seven month deployed de uh, deployment. If you didn't lose an eye, if you didn't lose an arm and you didn't lose your life, you eventually went back to the front lines and you had a lot of guys would skip out of hospitals to get back to their unit. And that is incredible. And I'm not taking anything away from Edward Carter at all. <clears throat> so he was impatient to get back to the action. And after being sidelined for a month, Edward Carter slipped out of the army hospital and made his way back to the front lines. After returning to his unit, uh, Carter fought with the 56th Armored Infantry Battalion through the last mopping up operations of the war. In combat, the two white officers of Eddie's platoon were wounded and he was made acting platoon sergeant. Meanwhile, the officers at D Company considered making a recommendation that Sergeant Carter be awarded a decoration for his bravery. Question, Dan. So there's racism, obviously, in the, in the services and all that. But the people he was in control of, they gave him full respect as their oh, superior? 100%. They knew who the fuck Edward Carter was. Okay, that's what's up. It, it's like that mo the movies where like there's always one black guy and then you have the hick racist dude. Then the black guy saves his life and the guy's like, oh, doesn't matter if you're black. You're a good person. I see it now. Um, That's Dan on movies, guys. <laughs> Don't. It's... It's an archetype that needs to fucking stop. It's a, it's a, it's a, a plot movement that needs to disappear. It's fucking stupid. Um, their fear were if he were recommended for a Medal of Honor, he wouldn't get it. Yeah, um, no more movies where people improve their and change their ways and and learn the error. Such a cliche fucking thing, Johnny. Shut no up. No one ever learns from their fucking mistakes. You fucking people out there, you're all just gonna be pieces of shit forever. So uh, some thought he would have a better chance of being awarded a Distinguished Service Cross. While the officers mulled over their decision, the men in Carter's unit welcomed him back as a hero, a tough guy who the Germans couldn't kill. Yeah, I mean, definitely couldn't kill him. I'm sick of seeing these movies where people become better people. In, the closing, days, shit. Uh, in the closing days of the war, D Company arrived outside a river town near the Alps, meeting no resistance uh, Carter's platoon advanced into town and took control of a German hospital. The war seemed about over. The next day, the company moved to the river to protect a bridge and were shocked to discover that the Germans were not yet finished. Out of the blue, a German uh, airplane suddenly came barreling over the bridge in the late afternoon. Men scattered, ran for cover, but anti-aircraft gunners quickly drew a bead on the German intruder and brought the fighter plane down. Uh, the pilot bailed and was captured. This dramatic encounter was the 56th Armored Infantry Battalion's last combat action of the war. In the next few months, D Company found itself shifted around Germany or part of what was now an army of occupation. It was charged with guarding German prisoners of war and captured ammunition dumps. Dog Company was deactivated in late July near Wallerstein, Germany, one of Captain Blair's last acts was to sign a recommendation for a Distinguished Service Cross for Sergeant Carter. Carter certainly deserved it, but Blair remembered, quote, he was one of the best soldiers I've ever seen. 
Yeah, he seemed like a. Uh, if he, if there wasn't for the armed services, he would have made a great serial killer. <laughs> so the black combat volunteers had served honorably and well. In the final weeks of the war, General Benjamin Davis toured the field and found that despite limited training and experience, the black volunteers' courage and battle gained them re- the respect of the white troops and commanders. Complaints mainly had to do with lack of training he found. In spite of the praise, as you, <clears throat> in some of these units, there arose an undercurrent of misgivings about retaining these troops within units once the war was over and battalions and regiments settled into occupation and garrison duties. So many black combat veterans were relatively low duty points were reassigned to old segregated service as truck drivers, cooks, and engineers. Others like Sergeant Carter with high combat duty points were assigned to the 69th, nice, infantry division for return to the United States. No, Yep. (laughs) Nope. Nope. So let me pull out my fucking soapbox here. When uh when Edward Carter went back to the ports to start to um go back to the United States, he wrote about the racism that he experienced. Uh basically, regardless of his stripes, white troops weren't listening to him all of a sudden because they didn't know what he did. This is fucking horseshit. The man almost gave his entire life for the fucking country. He saved the Speyer invasion single fucking handedly. And people were out there wanting to call him N-word this, N-word that. Treat him like a stupid fucking slave. Fuck those people. Racism has no fucking part, especially when this guy is a fucking American hero. Yes, I am passionate about this, and this is fucking bullshit. There are men that served this fucking country. There are men like Henry Johnson, who killed six Germans with his bare fucking hands, that did not get any honors bestowed to him by the United States because the United States felt like black people would get too uppity if they were given fucking awards. This is one of the darkest periods of our American culture, and I fucking hate it. And if you support it, you can go fuck yourself. Well put, Dan. I seriously, man, you know, uh, as much as I love military history, this is something I absolutely hate reading about. (laughs) This, This man, not only was he gifted in combat, but he was a great soldier. He would have been a great mentor. He would have been a great platoon sergeant. And everybody inside his unit felt that. But when all of a sudden he just became another black man coming home, he wasn't shit anymore. And that is bullshit. That is absolute bullshit. I agree 100%. So following an honorable discharge from the Army on September 30th, 1945, Edward Carter was welcomed to Los Angeles as a returning hero in November. But Dan, you just said in the Black community, he was treated as a returning hero. Um, The Army announced that he had received the Distinguished Service Cross and the story was widely circulated in the the press. Um, Carter never turned down a a request to an interview. It didn't matter if it was a local newspaper at an Army base or an African-American magazine or a nail in the coffin for his military career here, a Communist Party newspaper. Oh, boy. (laughs) 
when <clears throat> going to backtrack a little bit when edward first joined the ar army he was immediately put under surveillance for helping the communist forces fight the the fascists and the nazis in spain so he was under federal surveillance they stopped and started it throughout his career multiple times so even when he was really badass and did all that crazy shit, they still had him under surveillance? And I quote, he might not have been communist, but he was around them long enough to uh, let the communist ideology sink into his head. That sounds something like an intelligence report would say. Uh, so, of course, he was happy to be back with his family but it was not easy to find work. He landed a job as a cook in a private home. Well, also, because his skills weren't transferable. I feel that. 100%. It's like, hey, it's like, hey, what do you do? I'm, I can be Wolverine. No, no, we don't need that at Home Depot. No, like we're at hour two of this episode now. I'm going to keep it going. But <laughs> like with my job as an artilleryman, there is a website you can go and put your MOS into it. And it shows you all the jobs that you are capable to apply for. My MOS is the only MOS, which is your, you know, occupational uh, designation, is the only MOS that uh, said, um, there ain't shit out there for you. Sorry. Comedian. Comedian. No, my piece of shit father is why I'm here, Johnny. Hey, whatever trauma, you'll work through this later and you'll be like, oh, shit. I was really expressing my, my self-guilt when I was telling this joke, and I didn't realize when John was telling me how, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, Dan, we fucking told you that 15 years ago, but I got a TV appearance. I'm about to win an Emmy, motherfucker. I don't got time for this shit. <laughs> he also uh, tried to get a loan from the Veterans Administration to set up a small paint spraying business, but he had no success. He's just used to spraying bodies. <laughs> They're like, it's not gonna, it's not, it's not the same, sir. Johnny, what makes the green grass grow? Blood. Oh, yes. Uh, in September... He should, 19... he should have been a gardener. What the fuck? Oh, my God. In September 1946, for those of you who don't know, uh, we are referencing episode number 12, I think, uh, Medal of Honor recipients in which we talk about John Bassalone and uh, Audie Murphy. Great episodes. Go check them out. Back catalog, folks. Look at it. A lot of people happen, Johnny. Listen uh, to at least a minute of it. So in September 1946, he re-enlisted. And by mid-October, he was stationed at Camp Lee, Virginia, assigned as a staff sergeant to the 1st Group Special Service. Didn't take him long to come to the attention of the camp newspaper. An article about his exploits in his war appeared on October 30th in the Lee Traveler. Oh, man, the irony of a black man being the feature of his article in a newspaper called The Lead Traveler. We get it, Dan. No, you don't, Johnny. We, it's Bruce Lee's magazine. We get it, dude. Oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> uh, you got to write articles like Wata. Eddie had a good reason for thinking so positively about his new life at Camp Lee. As a winner of the Distinguished Service Cross, he was held in high regard as a war hero. His experience and skills as a combat veteran were valued at Camp Lee. He hoped to find a success that had eluded him in Los Angeles. But instead, 
he found himself on the train headed back to California. The army had other plans for him. Eddie, uh, Edward was right in thinking that he was highly regarded by, by his superiors. Those who worked directly with him always held him in high regard and considered him an outstanding uh, soldier. He was Eddie Money. Absolutely. Uh, he got two tickets to paradise, and that was California. And after the war, the government made, that was terrible, I'm sorry, uh, made plans to reorganize the state-level National Guards as federally recognized National Guard units capable of serving as trained reserves for the regular army. And the view of the military planners experience of World War II underscored the need for highly trained reserves that could be rapidly deployed in case of total war. Uh, planners noted that the key to meeting this critical need was to select an elite group of expert soldiers from the regular army uh, <clears throat> as instructors of these National Guard units. And Edward Carter was uh, selected as one of those expert soldiers. So that's why he ended up going back? Yeah, he well, he re-enlisted and they sent him to Virginia. And as he's getting ready to have his family sent out there, they're like, nope, you're going back to California. Okay, I'd hate myself if I didn't say this. He's going, going back, back, back to, to Cali, 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 Cali. Yep. Uh, from Los Angeles, Sergeant Carter was assigned to work as an instructor and advisor to the one for uh Oh, 1402 Engineer Combat Battalion at San Bernardino. I've been through San Bernardino. Knew that was coming. Knew that was coming. Uh, by the summer of 1947, Sergeant Carter was at Camp Roberts in the mountains near San Luis Obispo. Johnny? I can't, I can't wait until you mention Wheeling, West Virginia, so I can be like, I've been there. <laughs> so have I. Um... <laughs> so yeah he's training national guard he's he's <clears throat> he is reg regarded by the people that work directly with him uh as an expert soldier and eddie worked with the national guard for a year and a half during that time he and the other army instructors succeeded in expanding the guard from an undermanned poorly prepared outfit to a full-fledged well-trained military organization yeah <sighs> Uh, despite the appearance that all was going well, it was while he was serving as an instructor with the National Guard that he discovered he was under surveillance. The men Eddie worked with also became aware of the surveillance. An Army Air Force uh, <clears throat> man by the name of John Pullins was assigned to work as an administrative assistant in the armory on uh, <clears throat> armory, recalled being questioned by a man from the U.S. Army Intelligence. I remember... Ebony Magazine had published a big article that talked about Sergeant Carter. Carter was something of a celebrity. I got to know him when we worked at the National Guard Emory Armory. He was a very quiet person, but he was a better soldier than me. One day in 1947, this man from Army Intelligence came and asked me about him. Was he a communist? I said I never saw anything that indicated he was associated with any communist activity. So I knew they had him under surveillance, and sometimes I saw their cars parked outside. Oh. So the surveillance of Sergeant Carter continued. Uh, Edward wrote a letter that he was constantly shadowed by two uh, CIC Army Counterintelligence Corps agents. 
wherever he went. At one point, he was questioned by the agents. They asked him about his attendance at the Welcome Home Joe dinner. Edwards said he attended, but he had no idea that the Communist Party was involved with the sponsoring organization. Who the hell is Joe? That's just like the general, like the dinner was called Welcome Home Joe. Like, oh, okay. Uh, then without warning. I mean, it could have been clear if it was like <laughs> they were talking about Stalin. <laughs> uh, in July 1948, Edward was abruptly removed from the National Guard and transferred to Fort Lewis in Washington State. He said later that he was told by Colonel L.R. Boyd, the senior army instructor and Eddie's immediate superior officer, that Boyd tried to keep him as an instructor with the guard, but he was denied. Um, and uh, General Mark Clark, Commander Mark Clark, Mark Clark, uh, 6th Army Headquarters <laughs> at San Francisco's Presidio and the top commander for the regular Army instructors responded to Boyd's attempt at intervention by stating, quote, whenever you are in doubt as to the loyalty of an individual, that individual must suffer. That's true, unfortunately. Yeah. After Edward Carter was abruptly removed from the instructor group of the National Guard, he was assigned to the military police provost detachment in Fort Lewis, Washington. The detachment was composed of about 100 men, black and white, with a large percentage of whom were combat veterans. Ironically, Edward soon found himself working on drug cases that involved coordinating with military intelligence, the FBI, and local police in Tacoma. Apparently, the top brass of Fort Lewis did not know he was under any suspicion. Huh. Yeah. So you, this phantom was following him. You now, mean to tell me the government compartmentalizes stuff? What? <laughs> uh, by the spring of 1949, Edward had settled his family in Tacoma, and he was engaged in training infantry soldiers. Uh, now promoted to Sergeant First Class and assigned to L Company, 9th Infantry Regiment, he was a platoon sergeant. As part of their training, thousands of soldiers from Fort Lewis were sent to Yakima Firing Center. Located in a remote, dusty, mountainous area for two weeks of training exercises, the hazards of training range from avoiding rattlesnakes to demolition of unexploded artillery shells. In the fall of 1949, when his second tour of duty ended, Edward found that he was not going to be welcomed back with open arms. The story of his dismissal was revealed in a seven-page letter dated December 5th, 1949, uh, where Eddie wrote to Herbert Levi of the ACLU asking for help. So they were denying his reenlistment. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, basically he was told two days before he thought he was reenlisting, like, hey, man, not going to happen. Uh, oh, that's whack. The army, army doesn't want you back. That's, that sucks, man. Edward decided to go straight to the top and to make his case in person. The day his discharge was formally issued, uh, he purchased a round-trip ticket to D.C. Uh, he presented himself at the Pentagon and asked for an opportunity to defend himself. He asked the Inspector General for a hearing. This was refused. Uh, Adjutant General Witzville refused to see him as did Army Intelligence as a last resort, he went to Clarence Mitchell, Labor Secretary of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. 
So he tried for several years uh, to get them to overturn and they refused. They refused to even look at his case. Uh, several years later, they reopened it and they're like, we were probably wrong. <clears throat> so, you know, it's just an unfortunate, um, unfortunate yeah, circumstances. Uh, after two years in March, 1953, Edward wrote to ask Levi if he thought there might be a better tr uh, chance under the new administration of Dwight Eisenhower. Um, with McCarthyism in full swing, Levi was not optimistic. Uh, again, there, there was to be no success. Over the next two years, there were occasional letters between Eddie and Levi. And in May 1954, Eddie wrote that he was forced to concede defeat. He asked Levi to return all the papers and his distinguished service cross. Levi responded that although he was pessimistic, he would not admit defeat. But in the end, Levi did return all of Eddie's papers and his distinguished service cross. The return of these materials meant the end of any hope of redress. Man, that's so awful because that was what he loved so much. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, and now over the next following years, Edward developed noticeably uh, worse health problems, a heavy smoker. He was often photographed with a cigarette perched on his lips. He was particularly fond of miniature Italian cigars. Um, he was taken, Edward was diagnosed with lung cancer. He was taken to the hospital for cobalt treatments, but his condition worsened. And within a matter of weeks on January 30th, 1963, Sergeant First Class Edward A. Carter Jr. died at the age of 46. Oh, man, so young. On a rainy day, he was buried at the Veterans Cemetery near UCLA. Mildred, the boys, and a small group of family and friends attended the ceremony. His brother, William, was there, but his sister had died three years earlier. His father, the evangelist, 86 years old and by then blind, did not attend. Edward was buried in his old army uniform with his medals on his chest and in a sense, the memory of who he had been. Mm. But again, right now, it ends on a sad point. But several years later, he finally gets the notoriety he deserves. He finally gets, um, you know, the country recognizes him as the hero he is and six other uh, black veterans. So there is a darkness to the story, but there is a light. Um, and I, I hope you enjoyed this tale. I know it was all over the place. I know we were all over the place. Don't apologize for us being who we are. Johnny, I, I was on a roll. You, you know what? I'll give you back your biscuit. So anyway, <laughs> so yeah, there's a dark period, but now again, you know, he's been recognized. Um, there's this, the really great book I read, Honorary Sergeant Carter. Not only is it about his story, but it's about the story of the other uh, Black veterans that received their Medal of Honors that day, a lot of racism they faced, um, which is a very terrible part. But I hope you guys enjoyed this. This is a story that needs to be told. Um, Johnny, I hope you enjoyed. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Yeah, looks like you uh, are your eyes open right now. Yeah, I can see. I can see <laughs> everything. 
All right. Well, I am Dan Brady. On behalf uh, of what in the history, I hold on, Johnny. I'm, be, <laughs> I'm chomping I'm at the bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Dan Brady. <laughs> on behalf of what in the history, I just want to thank you. This is episode 25, but from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your listens. Um, and just appreciate it a hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you guys. Uh, we're going to keep on going. Happy black history month, y'all. And we will be back next week with the wonderful tale of Nelson Mandela. Yeah. I can't wait to see how he got cast in driving Miss Daisy. I'm so excited. There'll be more bad puns all next week. Please tune in. Uh, Thank you. And as my co-host always says, peace and love. Peace and love, y'all. It was a moonless night. I was 18 years old. Life was going nowhere. It was midnight at the railroad tracks. Miles away from anywhere. Said my dark prayer. You didn't look quite how I figured. Green suit and black hair. Smile on his face, ribbons on his chest. He seemed to walk on air. Some wealthy and brave. I travel the world, be powerful, but a slave until my grave. Now it's raining in the desert. I said, Always gotta rain on me. I'm just another other. Devil's dogs Would they ever want with me? He grinned I signed my name Diabolical back seal Heard the cadence of an evil choir Sand shifted I fell Into the pit March with the other damned Until I was one of them But for every deal with Satan They all face judgment at me I was sentenced to a floating prison
Houston. 